Hello and welcome to the Flying Reporter podcast. I'm John Hunt, a private pilot and YouTuber from the UK, and these podcasts will bring you interesting people, views and information focusing on general aviation. Today I meet the man who started his working life as an apprentice roof builder and who now runs one of the most read UK general aviation publications. Ian Seeger from Flyer magazine is my guest today. And we'll be discussing what that big red knob does. I'm talking about the mixture lever. When to lean, how to lean and how not to lean. Flying instructor Nigel Wilson from Anglian Flight Centres will be here for our Ask the Instructor feature. The Flying Reporter podcast is brought to you in association with AeroPS, the payment app for pilots, aerodromes and operators that makes it easy to pay landing fees, book PPR and settle parking and handling charges and even pay for fuel. Download AeroPS now from the Android or Apple app stores. When you start flying in the UK, you soon realise there's quite a lot to get agitated about. It might be the latest new grab of controlled airspace by a small, insignificant business airport. It could be the proliferation of temporary danger areas by a company trying to make money by proving they can fly a 10-gram package in a drone from one side of the country to the other. Or maybe the UK CAA has just released a new indecipherable publication that leaves you wondering if your licence is still valid. Sometimes, as a private pilot, it can really feel like no one is on your side. But I think it's fair to say that my guest on the podcast today really does try to redress that balance. I'm joined today by Ian Seeger from Flyer magazine. Ian is known to get agitated and angry too, and has a reputation for ranting in some of his aviation columns about the day-to-day realities of flying in the UK. I'm a journalist, and so I know that journalism is really important in a democratic society. I got into journalism because I felt that truth and accountability were really important. Telling stories, challenging decision-makers and speaking truth to power. So I asked Ian why he got into journalism and publishing. That's a a long story, but basically I I didn't quite know what I wanted to do when I grew up, and and I still don't, but I guess I'm stuck with this now. But but I have to say I've absolutely loved it. Um, But you're right, it's about... It's about telling stories. It's about communicating. It's about bringing bringing news to people. Now, I was never trained as a journalist. I don't know how I got so far in the BBC without having done so. I kind of learnt on the job. But did, did you go through formal training, or was this something you you fell into like me? No, I, fe- I fell into. I started my first ever job, apart from sort of Saturday jobs when I was at school. My first ever job, believe it or not, was a apprentice roof builder in the south of France. Um, and then I went from there to, to various jobs in London and ended up working for Haymarket Publishing originally, then Morgan Grampier, then Future Publishing, and then it kind of all just, you know, over the years it all kind of fell into place, really. So how did Flyer come about and Seeger Publishing itself? Uh, so basically when I was working for Future, one of my jobs, this is a long time ago, I was, was kind of looking at various acquisitions, I guess, and, and I was good friends with James Gilbert at Pilot because I'd spoken to James said hey do you want to sell uh, Pilot magazine and I also spoke to the people at Flyer back then um, and said do you want to sell Flyer magazine James said in his in his very inimitable way 
well, my dear chap, come and meet me at the Groucho Club. Um, <laughs> I'll put your name on the list when I auction it, <laughs> which he did, to be fair. I just couldn't afford it. Um, and I, the, the people who owned Flyer at the time, a guy called David Hewson, um and a couple of others, Ray Perman, I can't remember their names now. Uh, anyway, basically, cut a long story short, I bought Flyer magazine for Future Publishing in 1994, and then I bought Flyer magazine from Future Publishing in 1994, and that's kind of how it all came about. See, I didn't know that. That's fascinating. I, you know, I, I you know, I got into to aviation late, so I've no idea how long Flyer had been going for, and I just assumed you, you had started it, but um, you came along like you say in the 90s to to flyer and you know what was the magazine like then and and what did what was what was your aim for it back then i had I had visions of becoming a publishing magnet and earning huge amounts and having all sorts of jets and everything else clearly that didn't work out because i was kind of bitten i, I was already bitten by the aviation bug at the time back then flyer was a kind of an a4 plus size magazine that came out 12 times a year we 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 changed that to 13 times a year. We we launched things, the Learn to Fly Guide, various other supplements, and we got involved in events. So we, that what what is now Pilot Careers Live, which runs now all over Europe, uh, post COVID at least, we got into those early on, uh, and it kind of we just kind of did more and more stuff. I think we were one of the, probably one of the first, the first aviation magazine to have a website because we were this was in the really old dodgy dial-up days of haze modems and all those funny noises and stuff mm. like that so we were publishers but we were very specifically general aviation publishers and that's kind of where we where we stayed over the years and that's that's where we are now we know that it's been challenging times for any kind of print journalism hasn't it and and you took a dramatic step i think what less than a year ago now or was it during covid to was, to, uh, to ditch the print and go completely online it was at the beginning of COVID, at lockdown, really. Yeah. It became, I mean, it become, for anyone who opened their eyes, and we, I don't really count myself in that group, it was it was clear that specialist magazines were having a hard time on the newsstand. Uh, the numbers have been in decline across all areas for, for many years, um, and it was becoming more and more of an expensive place and a less efficient place to do business. COVID kind of wrecked it. It closed, closed airports, closed high streets, and it, it was obvious that... You know, if you sold any copies, you sold hundreds of copies um, compared to thousands. It just really wasn't there. Uh, and for us, the only choice was to was to go digital. And we, we did that in the space of about three weeks. I have to pay huge thanks to my team who went through massive upheavals. You know, not only were we working from home all of a sudden, but we weren't producing print. Um, and it, it was massive, massive change in a small period of time. It sounds like it was do that or die, basically. It, it was absolutely do that or die. There was no real. Uh, be a little bit careful about what I say. It for for us, it was we we. It was clear that you couldn't, we couldn't continue to support the newsstand and uh, talk to our friends who commercial partners who, who many of whom were our friends and, and honestly say to them yeah pay for, pay for the ads it's going out to thousands because clearly the newsstand was dead at the time it's kind of recovered a bit now but not anywhere like what it used to be and, and frankly I'm reading a great book uh, at the moment breaking news Alan Rusbridger and that's all about the sort of Guardian's transformation to di digital and, and that, that I mean even back then in the late 90s it was clear that, I mean, they actually thought that, that newspapers didn't have a print future, which they probably don't, to be honest. Um, 
but but specialist magazines definitely don't and so i'm kind of glad we did it we should have done it years ago but we wouldn't have had the courage we were forced to do it and it was a great thing that we did i do sort of lament the loss of 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 the magazine in its print form and i'm sure you and many of your readers do as well and and we understand the reasons of of why you did it i mean do you think you'll ever go back to 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 print form do you think it will ever have a resurgence I don't, I, no, not not in terms of a regular magazine. I mean, I, I love print. I've spent my whole working career, apart from the bit where I was building roofs in France, that is, uh, <laughs> in, in, in print magazines. And I, I love print, but it's just it just doesn't work. It, it doesn't it doesn't have a. I don't personally. I don't think it has a, a a sustainable future. If I was you know Jeff Bezos, I could probably do it as a hobby, and just lose a ton of money. But I'm not. Um, so no, it, it might be you know maybe maybe at some stage in the future we might do a print annual or something, a best of best of flyer special once a year mm. or something like that. But but ultimately the newsstand is a very expensive place to do business and a very inefficient place to do business. Um, and I think we're moving away from those times when you're happy to print literally tens of thousands of copies in order to sell thirty forty percent of that um, and then pulp the rest. It's just a complete. It's very, yeah. very inefficient. You've had um, a popular forum, um, which many people go to, including myself, sometimes to find out what's going on, <laughs> um, because people uh, people get to hear about things and they pop up on the forum and then they become news. I mean, it's a great source of, of tips, isn't it, for, for you? And um, a real uh, barometer of, of what's going on and what people are feeling. So, I mean, that, that, that's an act of genius, really, for, for, for you in, in a way to have that there um, as a source of information and a, and, a, and a sort of temperature gauge. People tend to rant on these forums and you're known for ranting. Um, <laughs> what, what gets, what, why is that? Why, why, why are you known for ranting and, and, and what is it that really gets you ranting about things? I'm not really sure why I'm known for ranting. I, I, it's I true, though, rant, isn't it? it? It is, yeah. I don't yeah. rant very often on the forum, for it sure. It probably comes from your columns, doesn't it? And, and, and it, the, you know, the articles that you've written where you've you've picked a particular hobby horse, whatever it, it might be. Yeah, I mean, I, because I, I, you know, I'm I'm not in the general aviation publishing business because it's a great business and I make a fortune because it isn't a great business and you don't, make a fortune it's you know it's a good business but it's not it's not what you do to get rich um but i do it because i'm actually passionate about general aviation and i really get frustrated when things get in the way and stop people enjoying general aviation confuse people i mean the, i've lost count of the number of people who said oh, i've given up i just can't keep up with the rules it's just all too confused i'm i'm worried about infringing controlled airspace it's all too difficult and it doesn't need to be difficult it really doesn't and deeply frustrates me when people go out of their way seemingly to make it difficult be that the civil aviation authority uh, sometimes various airfields and, and that just annoys me because it's un I, I find it unnecessary let's talk about your flying what kind of flying do you like to do i i like to do pretty much all types of flying i guess my probably my favorite type of flying is long distance touring i just love mm. the way that an, an airplane becomes a magic carpet and, and just takes you to places that you wouldn't ever get to before in, in ways that you couldn't easily get to before. Um, so long distance touring is probably my absolute favourite type of aviation. And I, I might be wrong here, my research is not always great, but you didn't you do some epic long distance journey um, over to America in your Cessna? I did. I took the 182 to Oshkosh. Um, absolutely. When was that? that was 
Well, I can't remember. That must be about eight or nine years ago now, I suppose. Mm-hmm. I mean, effectively, what what happened was um, the publishers of the French magazine, a magazine called Aviation Pilot, they we're good friends. We work closely t- with them, and they said, "Oh, we're organising a flyout. We're going to Svalbard, which is an archipelago up in the kind of halfway between the north of Norway and the North Pole. Why don't you come?" I went, "Yeah, okay, why not?" And so flew over to Svalbard with them and that involves a huge uh, sea crossing over the sort of Barents Sea I think and you kind of go you know what this is as long as it and, and they actually turned around and said well if you've done this you could go to America because this is easy you know America's easier I'm not sure it is but um, and then I thought oh yeah I'll do it I've always wanted to do it so just decided to fly to Oshkosh and, and that was great. What's your ambition then for the future I mean we all have dreams of, of things and, and that would be one of mine is, is a, a sort of transatlantic crossing um, what do you do after that? It's a good, it's a very good question. Um, I did it in my 182, and then a year after that, a friend of mine had a PA46 wanted to do it, so I went along with him. So I've done sort of two transatlantic trips in singles now. And I, honestly, as I get older, I think that's probably enough for me. I think that box has ticked. <laughs> yeah. I, one place in the world that I'd love to fly around more is Greenland. Greenland is just an absolutely stunningly, stunningly beautiful part of the world when the weather's good and i would absolutely love to do that so i'm not i kind of almost might just ask someone else to take the 182 over there (laughs) and then go and fly it while i'm over there or something (laughs) but um yeah no it's a it's a fantastic fantastic place so greenland will be my thing i think fantastic ian it's been an absolute pleasure getting to know a bit more about you thank you for taking the time to join us on the podcast thank you for inviting me john And don't forget to tune in to the Flyer live show, which can be found on YouTube every Thursday evening at 7.30. You're listening to the Flying Reporter podcast. If you're new to The Flying Reporter, then please do check out my videos of my flying adventures around the UK and Europe. There are also aerodrome and product reviews and authentic videos about my time as an aircraft owner. Just search up The Flying Reporter on YouTube. Each week on the podcast, we bust myths, answer your questions and help make you a better pilot by catching up with the head of training at Anglian Flight Centres. In this week's Ask the Instructor feature, Nigel Wilson talks to us about that big red knob. So when I was learning to fly, I wasn't shown how to lean. Leave that red knob where it is, unless you're turning the engine off, right? Um, You get your own aeroplane and you suddenly are conscious of fuel burn. (laughs) And you want to lean. Um, So I think there's something in this, really. And I wonder if you can help us understand it a bit more. Um, I mean, firstly, why in training are we not shown how to lean? Or or some schools don't teach you how to lean. Yeah. Um, usually it's because uh, invariably the training that we do is generally below 3,000 feet. Right. Um, and it's not, and, and the aeroplanes that we use are usually normally aspirated, smallish training aircraft. So the amount that you would have to lean by, uh, you wouldn't get a fantastic fuel saving anyway. Compared to the risk of a student pilot leaning incorrectly which can severely um, affect the lifetime of the engine right. so we we along with most organizations tend to say to students um, 
just leave the mixture rich yeah. all the time yeah. for your training. It's one less thing for the student to worry about as well. Um, and you know what? If you're worried about our fuel bill, that really doesn't matter because <laughs> we still charge you the same rate per hour. Yeah. So it's our problem that we're using more fuel than necessary. You're not going to benefit from leading the mixture. Right. You're just going to be helping the club. So you might think uh, until it all goes right. pear-shaped if we don't do it correctly. The biggest danger is is trying to exceed 75% power or such, you know, with a leaned mixture, isn't it, basically? Yeah. Which, what, what does that do? That, that will overheat the cylinders, presumably, is for one thing. Well, it, it, it can lead to all sorts of things like um, uh, detonation on the engine oh, and things yeah, like that. Yeah. So, so the, the mixture being an incorrect mixture, it might fire too soon. Yeah. Uh, and then that can lead to pitting on the piston and, and holes in pistons yes. and all sorts of things right. that go, go with it. So we tend not to, we, yeah. we'd much rather not do that yeah. and pay a little bit more in the fuel actually as a training organisation. Yeah. So once you get your own aeroplane yeah. <laughs> and you want to start leaning and sometimes if you're going at altitude you might going to need to lean really to, to keep the engine yeah. power going. Um, how do you, when to do it and how to do it yeah. uh, you know and, and I know there's all sorts of variables because there some aeroplanes are. are immensely clever <laughs> yeah. and will tell you exactly how to yeah. lean. Others it's all very rudimentary and yeah. done by ear really isn't it? Well the it is. I mean, the bottom line is, is the POH is king. Right. So for your aeroplane, you, you need to follow what's in the POH or yeah. the parts operating handbook. Um, additionally, you're right in that modern aircraft, uh, particularly fuel injection engines and those that have got engine management systems, we've got a lot more leeway and a lot more information given to the pilot to effectively enable us to lean uh, appropriately to what we want to do. Um, some of the older aircraft, we're, we're limited in the information we get, so that limits us as to what we want to do with regards to leaning, which we'll talk about the two main concepts in a sec. Um, and the other thing is, is, is generally leaning uh, becomes more apparent when you do buy your first aeroplane after you've got your license, mm. invariably you've gone for something a little bit bigger than a training aeroplane, mm. a little bit bigger engine, when it makes sense to lean. Mm. And as you say, if you if you are in cruising at sort of higher altitudes, then we, we need to lean uh, in order to achieve the best path for the engine anyway. So there's there's two main things. There's, there's lean rich of peak and there's lean, uh, and to lean the engine, lean of peak. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So first of all, what's peak? Yeah. So... Peak is when um, we uh, are flying at an altitude and probably the mixture is too rich yes. and we need to reduce the amount of fuel. So what we're talking about peak usually is peak um, exhaust gas temperature. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's the temperature we're looking at. Now, if you haven't got an exhaust gas temperature gauge on your aeroplane, mm. then what you see is actually a peak RPM. So as you lean the aeroplane off, um, you'll see that the RPM gradually starts to increase, mm -hmm. and as you lean it some more, it will decrease again. So the peak RPM equates to the peak mm. um, exhaust gas temperature. So that effectively is is the sweet spot, if you like. Mm -hmm. Most aircraft manufacturers will then tell you in the good old days to lean rich of peak. So mm. that means when you reach your peak RPM or your peak exhaust gas temperature, you would then make the mixture more rich mm. slightly to increase the temperature by a set amount. Mm. And the figure that bands around is about 75 degrees Fahrenheit, typically. Mm. So that's historically how older aeroplanes get leaned, okay? Uh, 
with the new modern aircraft, with engine management systems, we get a lot more information to do with individual cylinders, especially with fuel injection. We have a lot more control over how the fuel is um, given to those cylinders. Um, so we now also have the option to lean to lean of peak. Mm. So rich of peaks gives you best performance mm. or best power. Lean of peak gives you best economy. Mm which is what most people these days yes, are after yeah. with the price of fuel. Uh, so the POH is king, but yeah. that's the key, the, the two key concepts yeah. of leaning uh, in these days with engine management systems, lean of peak. If somebody's going to be buying their first aeroplane, like, it likely won't have a, an exhaust gas temperature ga gauge. No, yeah. And, um, you know, the, 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 I think in my old POH... Uh, for my old PO28 that didn't have an exhaust gas temperature gauge. It was kind of lean until the engine runs rough and then give it a nudge of, of mixture to, <laughs> to make it run smooth again. Yeah. Um, and that would that pretty much be how you would expect people to be leaning rich of peak if they don't have an exhaust gas temperature gauge? Is that the kind of Yeah, I, I, I mean, I wouldn't go by leaning it till it's rough. I mean, I'd go looking at the RPM gauge. We've yeah. all got RPM gauges. Yeah. So I, I would look at the RPM gauge and, and see where it gets to on the RPM gauge as a maximum. Yeah. Okay, and then that's where I would leave it. Then you'd Because yeah. if, you, if you carry on leaning it, you'll find that actually the RPM drops and it starts to drop. Uh, quite a long way before it starts to sound rough. So you're well lean of peak by yes. the time it runs yeah. rough. So how do you know by adding a little bit of mixture you're going to actually make it rich of peak? You yeah. don't. So yeah. I'd, I'd go by the RPM gauge if it was me yeah. in my aeroplane. And if you can, get a hold of your aircraft's uh, engine manual as well. Yes. Um, sometimes yeah. they cut the POH and the engine yeah. manual contradict each other. Yeah. I've noticed that on yeah. mine. Uh, mine is currently saying, you know, for best engine longevity, it's recommending rich of peak. Yeah. Um, and only to go for economy cruise, leaner peak, if uh, if range is really important to you. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, interesting stuff. I would suggest that people maybe talk to an instructor, maybe. Uh, and and it'd be, wouldn't it be great if people went with an instructor and we went and they went through this in their own aeroplane? No doubt, if you're joining a group, you're going to be checking out with an instructor anyway. And I'm sure they could probably talk you through the process and show you how it's done. I'm sure they will. It's, it's one of those things that everyone talks about. Everyone's got their view on it. But all of us, I think, when we come to flying long distances, at higher altitudes, particularly with our own aeroplanes, we are going to have to lean. So go and learn how to do it. Nigel, thank you very much. OK. And Nigel will be back to share more of his knowledge and experience in the next episode. We'll talk about how to choose a flying school, what questions to ask and the schools to avoid at all costs. If you're enjoying the podcast, then please do tell your friends. Sharing it on social media will really help. That's it for now. My thanks go to you for listening and to the podcast sponsor, AeroPS, the payment app for pilots, aerodromes and operators. Until next time, fly safely, my friends. Mm -hmm.